the musical Fiddler on the Roof is a story of the Jewish people living in Russia under the heel of the Tsar, persecuted by everyone who is non-Jew. It's at the turn of the century. Though the story is fictional, it relates to historical events in that this was the time when there was a great influx of immigrants from Russia, Russian Jews, to America. But it was a community of Jews living peacefully among themselves, but were not living at peace with their neighbors. They lived knowing that they were a hated people, but their faith sustained them. Then came the day that a directive came from the Tsar that the village would be destroyed, that everyone be, would be dispersed from that village. And as each one made plans for his own particular journey away, a young Jew came up to the aging rabbi and he said, Rabbi, wouldn't this be a wonderful time for the Messiah to come? That has been the hope of the Hebrew people from the very beginning when the nation was established under David down until the present moment when unfortunately they eagerly await the one who has already come. But it has stabilized the nation all through the centuries when overcome by their enemies with no sense of security within themselves. There was always the hope the Messiah will come and then everything will be right. First mention of the Messiah was around 1400 BC, long before Israel became a nation. It was then that uh, Balaam, who was a Chaldean, son of Boaz, so identified in Scripture, said that there would be a star that would rise out of Judah and a scepter from the lineage of David. From that moment on, there began to be envisioned in the lives of the communities and the people that if we can just hold on, the Messiah will come. He will sit upon the throne and his reign will be far greater than anything that we've ever experienced. It was told and retold at difficult times. This morning, we're in the 8th century. We're going backwards because last week we were in the 6th century. We've got three Isaiahs to deal with. Last week we talked about the second Isaiah. He was talking to the people who were in exile the kingdom had fallen, Jerusalem had been laid waste, the nation no longer existed, and all of the Jews were in captivity. It was then that Isaiah said to them that the time will soon be here when the Messiah will restore, and the light of the Messiah will be spread to all the world. Last week's theme was the gift of light through the Messiah. We go backward now to the first Isaiah, living in the north. Though he lived in the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom was the one that was 
fighting for its survival against Assyria. From the moment that the Hebrews came into the Promised Land and encountered the Canaanites, laid waste to the cities and became inhabitants of the land, from that moment down to the present moment in captivity, Israel has been battling somebody. Most of the time they were, they were tribal wars. Many times between the tribes of Israel themselves, most of the time fighting off the Philistines, fighting off the Edomites, all of the surrounding tribes, constantly at war with Israel. But now in the 8th century, at the time in which first Isaiah lived, Assyria had become the strongest nation of the Middle East, in fact, of the world. They were overwhelming the nations about them. Israel and Syria had bound themselves together to fight off Assyria. We noted last week or the week before that they had asked Judah to join, and Judah would not join, and they attacked Judah. Battles all the while, fighting all the while. And now it looked as though the northern kingdom would fall under the heel of Assyria, which they did in 722. They had not yet fallen. Isaiah was comforting them. And he was saying to them, there will be a time of peace. And in his writing, in the first Isaiah, he envisions a time when peace will be over all the earth. The lion will lie down with the calf. The wolf and the sheep will graze together. A little child will play with a poisonous snake and have no fear. As God created the world in the beginning to live in peace and harmony, so will it be when the Messiah comes. Such a dream as we listen to the description from Isaiah as to what the world will be, we can envision in our Bible story books with which we grew up of Eden where all these things were at the time of God's creation. But this was their hope. There will be a time when we no longer will have to fear, but we will be living in peace. How timely today. Where is that peace? The Messiah has come, and in his coming the angels sang of peace on earth, but so elusive, where is that peace? What was Isaiah talking about when he talked about the realization of peace coming with the Messiah? What were the angels talking about when they promised peace on earth with the birth of the Messiah? The Bible says there will always be wars. Always will be rumors of wars. And with those rumors will become the predictions that the end of the age is approaching. But the wars will always be and the wars always have been. But when the prophet talked about peace that comes with the Messiah, it's an entirely different concept of peace that we need to recognize and take advantage of, and not simply the cessation of hostilities where nations will no longer be at war with one another. For as long as the world lives apart from God, there will be those things happening that bring about wars 
and divisions among us. Our lesson writer said that as she prepared to write the lesson, she went to her dictionaries to get the definition for peace. Four of her five dictionaries, she said, gave as the primary definition of peace the absence of war. You can have an absence of war and great turmoil. That isn't the kind of peace that makes the individual live a life that is fulfilled and full of confidence and worth. Of course, we all want that kind of peace, national peace. We went through a period just recently where we were not defending ourselves against anyone. We were not involved in fighting nations per se. We did have police action against groups trying to protect their interests, but not our own. Since the World War II and the Vietnam War and the Korean War, we lived in a time of peace until the present moment when we're engaged once again in war, a kind of war that we have never fought before. We're learning our way each day as to how to fight such a war. But the fact that there is no peace between nations doesn't mean that the promise of the Messiah was not fulfilled. The second interpretation of peace that our writer used was freedom from terrorism. She wrote it last year. She had no idea what she was facing in talking about peace in being free of terrorism. Terrorism is a different kind of war. When we fought Germany, it was to defeat a nation whose leader was trying to dominate the world geographically and politically. When we fought the Vietnam War and the Korean War, we were fighting for nations to preserve their independence. Now, our war knows no national boundaries. It knows only the nature of man given to the forces of evil, a war not to gain material worth, a war to destroy people, a war against those who are filled with hatred. And certainly that is a battle that will rage long because the forces of evil are deeply steeped in the world, a part of our society, one that has been kept submerged for one reason or another, breaking out at certain points, but never to the extent to which it is today, where we have recognized that there is a force of evil that is intertwined with most nations of the world, and their intent only is to destroy and to destroy and to destroy. A fight that we must take seriously and never give in to that which prompted them to become haters of us. So that is no peace that the Messiah has brought, freedom from terrorism. And the third meaning of peace, which our writer brought out, was reconciliation after hostilities. We have faced that in the past, and as a nation we have shown ourselves to be true to the nature of who we ought to be. 
When we defeated, and along with other nations, were a part of the defeat of Germany, and they were facing starvation, economic depravity after World War II, the Marshall Plan put them back on their feet. We didn't carry the hatred for a nation with us that took the lives of so many of our people. The fight was over, and they became our brothers and sisters, and we went in, and we put them back on their feet, having knocked them off. Some of the atrocities that came out with the war with Japan were unbelievable. This was the hostility of national leaders so that when war was over, we didn't hate the Japanese as a people. We knew that most of those who fought had been brainwashed. And we went in and rebuilt their empire so that they became one of the strongest economic nations in the world. We are that kind of people, we are Americans. We fight when we have to, but when it's over, we don't carry grudges. We try to undo the damage that was done in carrying out the battle that was done. So hostility that we have experienced gives way to forgiveness and acceptance. And that's the kind of peace that we'll be striving for on and on. But I want to leave the path that our writer has taken us down these three paths, which she stays upon, to simply point out that when the angels sang of peace, when Jesus talked about peace, it was not the peace between nations, peace between ideologies. It was inner peace. Peace that we can know even while the world is raging with war. Listen, Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Now, the sword is the instrument used to destroy the enemies of peace. Such a misunderstanding with his coming that peace would come over all the world and we don't have to do anything but wait for that natural peace to come about. We fight for peace. It isn't automatic. It isn't the cessation of hostilities. It isn't the absence of terrorism. Peace is spiritual reconciliation with God that brings a change of heart, a change of attitude, so that we live in peace with one another. And as the storms rage, there can be peace within. Every evening as we have prayer at our table, without exception, I thank God for the serenity and peace of our home against all of the threats and the fears and the terrors outside. Peace for the individual and for those of us who comprise groups of like mind and commitment. You know by now that my favorite person in history, apart from Jesus Christ, is St. Francis of Assisi. Where are you? <laughs> 
One of the most beautiful prayers ever written was a prayer of St. Francis. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sorrow, joy. St. Francis identified those natural situations in life that take away our peace and bring anxiety and conflict and being unsettled. But a corollary to each of these takers away of peace are the means whereby peace can be restored. And he says, let me be your instrument to bring about peace in these circumstances. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Hatred puts everything out of proportion, obscures everything that is true and pure. Hatred builds a wall between us and God. How can you love God, said Jesus, if you don't love your neighbor? How can they expect God to forgive us if we are unable to forgive one another? But so simply, so succinctly, and we can become peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God, said Jesus. So we become peacemakers where we encounter hatred. Let us so love. An incident was told in the life of St. Francis when in the village in which he lived, the leaders of the city had fallen out with the bishop whose seat was there in the city. And the bishop in his anger excommunicated every member of the leading committee of the city. It broke St. Francis' heart. He called all of the committeemen together of the city and asked them to meet him at the residence of the bishop. And they gathered together. And the bishop, not knowing they were present, was upstairs. St. Francis called his fellow monks about him. One of the beautiful hymns in our hymn book is a hymn by St. Francis of Assisi, a great hymn writer. One that doesn't appear in our hymn book has to do with Brother Sun and Sister Moon where he incorporates all of nature and all of creation in a personal relationship and commitment. And there was one verse in particular that he composed for that occasion talking about peace and reconciliation. And they began to sing the canticle to the sun. And the bishop heard the singing and he came downstairs and there he was confronted with those whom he had excommunicated. But they all looked into the face of St. Francis. How they admired him. How they loved him. So much so that as he stood there and sang of reconciliation between the two, the bishop came down the steps, walked over and embraced the townspeople, and they in turn embraced him. And the hostility ceased and peace came. Are there times when we experience hatred yeah 
on the part of others that we can be peacemakers listen it's a lot easier to ignite that hatred to agree with the wrong that has been done to agree with the terrible things that has brought about this hatred when one says I hate Saddam Hussein and we in turn say well your hatred is nothing like mine and Jesus said love your enemies how do you a beginning place is to not hate maybe we can't love but we don't have to hate hatred eats at our insides and destroys us and the best way that an enemy can defeat us is to get us to hate him so where there's hatred let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon, to carry grievances against people because they've done something that has hurt us, that has harmed us. I'll never forgive you, we say, for something that's been done. And we do carry that non-forgiveness with us. We have all been injured in one way or another by someone. It's a part of living. None of us gets through life without having been injured by someone. But what do we do with that injury? I was moved by reading in a Sunday school lesson about the young man, a student, working his way through college, I believe, delivering pizzas. And a teenager with his friends decided it would be a thrill just to kill somebody outright. And so they ordered a pizza out to a remote place. And when the pizza was delivered, they shot him and killed him. For no cause, a total stranger, just for the thrill of killing. The delivery boy was an only child, and the father grieved, having lost everything. His friend said, what are you going to do to punish the boy who did it? What kind of revenge are you going to seek? Are you going to try to get the death penalty? But the father went to see the grandfather of the young man who had done the killing. He was his guardian. And as they stood facing each other, the grandfather wept bitterly. He asked forgiveness for what his grandson had done because a young boy who died was not the only death that day, the death of the grandfather over his grandson having done a terrible deed. The two embraced. The father of the slain young boy forgave the grandfather of the young man who did it. And the two got permission to go to the schools to address the classroom on trying to squelch the sort of thing that brings about incidents such as this. Where there is injury, are we able to pardon those who have injured us? And where there is doubt, faith. There's no peace if there's doubt. As long as there's doubt, there's eating away with our confidence and the integrity of the things that we believe. But if we can share our faith with others to build them up, then we have gone to a great length to bring them the peace that they so sorely need. To encourage them in their faith. All of us have times in which our faith is weak. 
disappointments that we feel that are unjustified and how it could have been different. God could have done, but he didn't. The question arises over and over in the minds of many. And doubt is something that comes to us all. But there are some who are immersed in doubt. And we can be instruments of God to increase their faith and to dispel that doubt. Where there is despair, hope. No word has more somber connotations than the word despair. That means there's no light at the end of the tunnel. There's no hope that things are going to get better. Despair is that point to which people go when they take their own lives because they see nothing else to do. Despair. Hopelessness. But where there is despair, we can bring the love of Christ as a reality to say all is not lost because Christ can make things right. Well, St. Francis identified other aspects by which we can be peacemakers, but time doesn't allow us to go as deeply as we would like. But we mustn't overlook the fact that Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem as he came to his last days on earth. And he wept because of the plight of the people. They were living in darkness. They were living in sorrow. They were living in a lack of faith. They were living in hostility. And he shook his head. If only you knew the things that make for peace. They didn't. And they fell. But here is the light. Here is the promise of the Messiah. Here is the peace that all envisioned when they talked about the coming of peace with the Messiah. Jesus was getting ready to leave his disciples. He would return to heaven. They would be on their own. This was his last will and testament. I give to you my peace, not as the world gives. I give you my peace. And the peace that comes through Christ is the peace of the Messiah. And it is the peace that will always be there. We live at peace.